Welcome to another pint with Shawnee B coming to you from Chiswick in London, one of the beautiful parts of London that I like so much. I have with me a very interesting guest today, a journalist uh, who for the last 40 years has been involved in health issues. She's currently the Channel 4 News Health and Social Care correspondent, which she's been doing for 20 years, I think. She's also the first Kiwi I've had on the show, which is an honour. And her name is Victoria MacDonald. Welcome. Thank you. How are you? To this. Yes, I'm good. Thank have you, you done many podcasts before? I'm sure you have. No, never. Really? Never a podcast? No, and, and um, journalists aren't very good at being interviewed. Ah, well, yeah. I'm We're so well, used to asking the questions. Yeah, well, th- this is a different one. As I said, you can ask me questions, and you already have. We, we only literally met about 20 minutes ago, and... Uh, We've been bantering back and forth with questions. Victoria has had a huge career and is one of the leading lights in everything to do with health. She started her career in 1981, just as the AIDS crisis was hitting. And she's got a lot of memories in that, which I want to talk to her about. Also today in Britain and in, in Ireland, in my country and a lot of countries, the social health systems are creaking at the seams. And uh, Victoria is very knowledgeable about all this. Before we talk about health, though, I wanted to talk to you in a broader sense about the media situation right now as a journalist and the sort of, as some people put it, the race to the bottom. We have fake news. We don't know because of the various places that we get our news from, which is real, which isn't, which is propaganda. Growing up, you kind of knew the difference between public relations and proper news and you could sort of see through agendas. Now you can't. How, how has that affected you, particularly in the last, say, 10 years? Well, it's probably even a shorter period of time than the last 10 years. But funnily enough, I had a discussion with somebody today, a very seasoned former war correspondent, and he was telling me how he'd been shown video of a boat full of refugees being shot at and a young woman being killed as they tried to flee across the Straits of Gibraltar or somewhere. And it turned out to be fake. But it had got out there and then had been used to make a point about refugees coming into Europe and he was quite taken aback that he that he so very nearly sort of fell for us and I think we are all of us on much higher alert these days so for instance in my job I will be looking during the winter you know for signs that hospitals are not coping I mean I don't want to find them but I have to look for them and there'll be occasionally something on um Anyway, Facebook, yeah, Twitter, anything. Yeah, yeah. There'll be, there'll be social media. Yeah, yeah, social media of say somebody lying on a hospital corridor or awful on a trolley stuff. and a yeah, yeah. And I refuse to use them because I can never tell what the circumstances are. What you year know, it was? What year it was? Yeah. Anything. You just do not know what happened around that event. All the stuff around fake news about the manipulation of news and so on has made those of us who are in the mainstream media probably for the better, much more questioning, much more cautious about what we're being told and what's being brought to us. Um, And we have to check and double check Mm. the provenance of everything. I mean, we have this thing where everyone's a journalist. You know, we have a phone in our pocket, we can film things live. And, you know, whenever some big news story breaks, it's usually, or in many cases, it's broken by a bystander. We have this race to the bottom in terms of circulation of newspapers. And and, and it's a knock-on effect to to the television business, which you're in advertising revenue is now splintering across so many different uh, medias and, and delivery platforms not enough money to pay journalists not enough journalists overworked journalists quality of, of reporting goes down less readership and it, you know there's a gurgler situation happening the big... actually i'd slightly dispute that okay yeah, go, um, go. They, because 
while there are some parts of the media where, where that undoubtedly is true, actually, some of the recent events have seen some of the best journalism I've mm. seen in a long time. I mean, you look at look at some of the reporting that's coming out of America now. Yeah. You know, the revival of things like the New York Times, the mm. Washington Post. The, oh, the failing the, New York Times, as Mr. Trump keeps yes, calling it. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, there's some really, really yeah. impressive journalism at the moment because of the news agenda, and that's, and that's bringing out some of the best. Mm. You're right about the falling advertising revenues, but certainly... Channel 4 News, you know, we're considered the jewel in the crown of yeah. Channel 4. And even though our advertising revenue may not be that much, they are determined that they will keep, you know, that we are there because mm. we represent so much of what is the best, yeah. I'd say, about journalism. I mean, I know it sounds it's bragging, but... Well, it's not you know. bragging. I mean, no, and it is a discussion and you are that argument is right. But I, what I kind of meant was, and I think the New York Times are doing it out of deserved venom towards Trump, but the idea that in something like Spotlight, the movie where an editor in the Boston Globe can put three people on a story for over a year, sleuthing, digging up paedophile priests, holding off, not letting it go, and then boom, when they're ready, going with it, just when they're about to have injunctions. Or, you know, the Washington Post story with, with the, the Tom Hanks movie and Meryl Streep. That part of journalism, you could, as an editor, say to three people, okay, I want you back in six months with it six page from pager on whatever it's hard to fund those things yeah no today. that's true and and most newspapers set up these investigation units and they quickly go by the wayside yeah and um, we have a brilliant investigations unit but we're pretty alone in that in some ways we've brought in or they have not we uh, brought in some brilliant stories recently not least the facebook and the cambridge analytica yeah, yeah. stuff well i mean that took months and months and months but that is part of our USP, I guess. How does Channel 4 News sit in its mission versus, say, the BBC? It has always had this almost BBC-like authority behind it. Has that been carefully guarded by the station over the years? Or Oh, my God, yes. What's different is we don't um, have taxpayer funding. That gives us a degree of independence. People view us very differently. We're, you know, there's always these accusations that we're left wing or mm. whatever. Actually, what we are is able to question a lot more. So it doesn't matter who comes into our site, left wing, right wing, or whatever. If we think that they ought to be answering to us, then we will. And in fact, an interesting thing happened recently, which I think was quite upsetting. Actually, Theresa May did not give Jon Snow an interview agreed to an interview at the um, Tory party conference this year. And that was the first time that's ever happened, that no Prime Minister has sat down with Channel 4 News, we are a one of the mainstream broadcasters, because they have just decided that we are of no value. They sat down with, you know, LBC radio, yeah, yeah. but not us. There's an implication that the BBC are somehow hamstrung, though, by that, when you say about your independence. Are they? I would have thought that even if you are under the spotlight of being the taxpayer funded for want of a better word particularly in Ireland with RTE which is completely funded by, by license fees and stuff like that but that there is almost a bigger determination to show impartiality and show that we're, we're, we're going to break is it, do you feel a real difference though between the two? I think so I mean we can, we can do different stories from the BBC we, we can do many more 
investigations, asking different sorts of questions. You know, the, the BBC has to be seen to be absolutely and utterly impartial. And we would argue that we are impartial too, but it's done in a... I, I can never quite put my finger mm. on it, but in a slightly different way. It's, I think sometimes the BBC feels to me that can, they can slightly tie themselves in knots. Now, so an interesting point was over their climate change reporting, where they were giving what was finally decided to be undue attention to the climate change deniers you know now and you have to say do they make up half the population probably not so was that the right form of impartiality you know that's the sort of thing where they where they tie themselves and sorry for mentioning trump again but you you do then say well the leader of the free world is a denier of climate change and and one of the things that i you, you i picked up that you said was this idea about poor research badly reported you know, if you take the if you take that climate change discussion, we'll come to health in a minute. But the BBC is kind of going well. There's a lot of very vocal people using bogus research out there for their agenda. And do you report that or not report it? And do you report it and ridicule it or do you? you know, it's... Well, well, that's the discussion that we're all having at the moment. And I think the BBC, having done an inquiry into the way it was dealing with climate change, has decided actually you don't you don't seek that balance because it's not balanced in the first place. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about how you got into journalism. Before that, I want to maybe get into the nuts and bolts of wither health at the moment. Let's take it from the top. NHS creaking. You've talked over some of the interviews that I've seen you doing about the, the idea that people in Britain, particularly more than Ireland, fight for this beautiful thing that was invented that's starting to get a bit raggedy around the edges. Tell me where you feel it's at right now and what needs to be done. Big question, but... Yeah, no, but it's, that's an easy question for mm. me to answer because at the moment it's in pretty dire straits. And the thing about the NHS is that it will always keep working and it works off the back of the most incredible passion that the mm. staff in the NHS have and supported by the public. Well, they say it's like a religion here. Mm. You know, you, you don't... You get some on the streets with pitchforks, basically. Yeah. 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 But there have, has been years of underfunding. Now, the government says it's not underfunding, that they've put in more money year on year, but actually the amount of money that they were putting in was so low that it was flatlining. And actually the way NHS finances work, it was a decrease in funding. And you could see it. You, in front of your eyes, you could see it starting to get things getting tighter and more and more difficult and it's harder to get a, an appointment with your GP mm. the hip and knee replacements which were always the first to um, be waiting. Yeah, mm. longer waiting lists um, fertility treatments you know some places you just can't get it mm. now the, all the easy things get, mm. get done now things like cancer waiting times well they haven't met that target yeah. meanwhile the cancer grows and grows yeah. the things that are urgent yeah so now the government has put in some more money, and it's a phenomenal amount of money, really, but it's just not going to be enough because there was so much underfunding before. So I think the time is coming for a big conversation about what we're prepared to fund, what we can keep afford, what we can afford, what we can't afford. Most politicians aren't quite prepared to have that conversation, but I think we should. There is a very clear partisan line between Labour and the Conservatives in this country on NHS issues. Is that fair? Well, yeah. So it's always been seen to be win-win for Labour. You know, Labour comes in, and certainly when the Blair government came in, they just threw money at it. And the NHS was in a very fine state. What they didn't do was measure 
the impact of that money. And it turned out at the end of that marvellous period that actually they couldn't measure. Did it get flabby? It was more about measuring the value of where that money had gone, um, which the Conservatives then sort of attacked the Labour government on. became their sort of mantras, you know, we we don't want wastefulness. Um, We want to be able to measure that sort of stuff. But now there is a big push for it to become a cross-party issue so that you take the politics out of it. Um, So you don't have these endless cycles of... The annual budget. Let's do a five-year budget, for God's sake. Stop this annual budget crap. Yeah, well, they did do that. Yeah, we were Um, still at it in Ireland. And and we've got a 10-year plan that's coming up soon to try and stop that boom and bust cycle when I was in America of course I was in a big job and I got health insurance and you know then you lose your job or you leave your job and you get you realize that your health insurance is 600 US dollars a month right and I'm going I can't pay that in Ireland at the moment I think I'm paying about 86 and I went traveling for a year a couple of years ago and I went to the VHI voluntary health insurance but anyway the global fee for my coverage was went up to 260 excluding USA. And if I wanted the USA, it went up to 600 again. And I heard a great quote, which was, you know, the biggest problem capitalism does is it mixes capitalism or market economics with public health, and that can never work. Would you agree with that? Or? Yeah, I mean, what's happened here is interesting because we have a similar system in New Zealand um, started around about the same time, National Health Service. But at one point, the insurance market got in there and the middle classes were taking out health insurance. And their health insurance, um, the number of people with health insurance, absolutely rocketed. Now here... It's low. It's always remained around about 11%. And quite a big part of that is um, corporate. Well, even though I do it, Again, the hypocrisy reigns everywhere in life. Even though I do it, I understand that by doing it and by creating this huge number of people who have health insurance, you're creating a, a, almost a false... It's a bit like the vaccination thing. If, if if everyone stays in the national health and we push forward together to fix it, but if people... Yeah, but it doesn't afford... work like that because, it, because people with health insurance do not stop using the national health. No, I know, yeah. You know, then they, they're using it. They're using it... In to case sort of, of emergency, yeah. It's a break glass you know. situation. Yeah. But it's driving inequality, you know, because I can go, oh, yeah. you know, to my so point, sure. I can get my knee done when I twist it in my gym. But, you know, the person who, who doesn't have the money who's running around a football pitch and twist their knee, they can't get it done. Yeah. And I, I'm very conscious of that. And it's still like, I realize if I got cancer, you know, I need to not lose everything that I own, you know, from, for treatment of something very serious. So I, yeah, I kind of tend to only go for the very serious stuff. But that's the absolute beauty of the National yeah. Health Service. You know, if I got cancer, I would feel perfectly happy about being in the National Health System. Members of my family have been and they've seen their consultant was a world leading expert in breast cancer. Yeah. What more could you ask for in the system? You know, the ward might be a bit noisy. It might be a bit more preferable that you could pay for a private room, for sure. But otherwise, that is where you get the value of it. Now, some people would argue against me on that because they say, well, for instance, you'll get drugs that aren't available on the NHS that you can afford to pay for. The NHS is very good at making sure if you need to be on a trial, they'll find a trial for you and so on. You know, I'm, I'm... absolutely passionate about if something serious happened to me I would have no qualms about my ability to be treated 
the problem with the National Health Service at the moment is in some ways is actually the social care side of it elderly people not being looked after ending up in NHS beds because they can't be got home again safely that then creates a backlog in A&E because you can't get movement through the hospital and while the governments are very good at putting more money into the health service when people go onto the streets and demand it they're not very good at putting more money into social care and you can immediately see the problem with that Mm -hmm. and so that is going to be the big issue I mean this is not to blame elderly people for um, for the pressures (laughs) on the health system but the fact is the changing demographic is that we are getting older Mm -hmm. and we aren't producing enough children to fund the care Yeah, 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 yeah. and the health service is not going to cope unless you resolve that yeah. bit of it. And the same with pensions and all this kind of stuff. They're not, they're not going to affect... One of the things that I wanted to talk to you then about, one of your, your current passions is the whole role Brexit's going to play. And I've seen you being very vocal about the sheer number of doctors, nursing staff, care workers working in the National Health Service in Britain who are not from Britain and are likely to be kicked out well I'm very worried about it It, it's not to say whether I am pro or anti-Brexit it's actually as far as I'm concerned irrelevant the issues are that when we leave the European Union there are going to be some problems with staffing and there are already problems with staffing so it's going to exacerbate it we have some very 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 fine many very fine EU workers Mm. researchers you know Mm. in cancer research and molecular studies and the nurses and the hospital porters and the care workers where are they going to come from so the ideas are that they're starting to look further into you know australia new zealand india the commonwealth countries and so on but there's an issue with that because you can't just go to jamaica and say Give us all your best nurses. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't I do know, that I agree, yeah. to an economy. It's immoral. And there are other countries who are suffering the same shortages, so they're going to be trying to get that pool mm. as well. And I'm just very worried, because it was one of those unintended consequences, probably, when people were voting to leave, that they hadn't actually thought about the implications for the people here. Now, I interviewed this nurse, and it really sticks in my mind. She was from the Netherlands, been here for 17 years, married to an Englishman, two children born here. She said the day after the vote, after the referendum vote, all her colleagues were joking, saying, oh, you know, make us an apple pie before you leave. And she's going, what? What do you mean? You know, I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then she suddenly thought, maybe I'll have to. And she has never quite felt the same about being here since, Mm -hmm. having lived here very happily. They're not saying it to me, because I'm from New Zealand, but not from the European Union. Nobody's saying to me, not to my face anyway one of the things i say to i'm sure there's a lot of health professionals in britain listening to this podcast and uh, one of the things i would say to you cheekily as an irishman is go find you ha- you will definitely have some irish ancestry and mm-hmm. we're happy to give you passports for the eu which may help but, oh uh, do you know i went and looked for something yeah no it's, i mean every, are, the numbers no, applying are huge no, one it was one generation too far uh, away yeah <laughs> well, we, we were all sent out that way well, let's talk there let's segue for a minute you are from Auckland? Yes. Tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like and how you ended up getting into journalism and how you ended up specialising in the health element. 
that's two big questions. Okay, well, you're, so you were you're, you're Kiwi born and bred. What was it yeah. like growing up for you? Was it was it? Did you have a happy childhood? Was it fun? Did you like living in New Zealand? Were you dying to get away? Yeah, I was dying to get away. So yeah, really, I'm not yeah. joking. But no, I had a perfectly reasonable childhood. I was well looked after, and two lovely parents who split up when I was very young. So spent time moving back and forth between the two of them. Grew up in the bush and by the sea yeah. and you know, my sister had a horse and we to all intents and purposes really idyllic. But um I couldn't wait to get out of there. What was it going on like, in your mind? There's gotta be a bigger world out there. Yeah, and you know, when I look back on it, all my really good friends at school were English or American. I was just drawn to people from elsewhere. As soon as I could, really, I yeah. left. And I didn't mean to leave for 35 years or yeah, something. So I've been gone I, now. I was going for two and I ended yeah. up being gone for 21. <laughs> and now, you know, I'm still here. And, and that wasn't in my plan, if I ever could be said to have had it. There plan. was a good analogy about this, which is not meant in the sort of tragic connotation that can be taken, but someone who was talking about tsunamis was saying that every time you hear the word tsunami being shouted at the beach there's hundreds of people running away from this from the seashore and there's hundreds of aussies or kiwis running towards it with their surfboards <laughs> under their arms and it's a bit like when i got to sydney i just went this is the city i've been looking for i was like i have to stay i ended up getting citizenship i'm very proud to be australian and irish you know very proud but when i got there i went this is great and the isolation is all the things that people are running to europe for Europeans are running the opposite direction away from one of us is wrong um, trying to find that balance well isn't that marvellous about global citizenship yes I know, you know and, and also when you do do it you kind of you've no fear now like I, I could go like oh you're home now I, I may be home I may go and live in Jamaica I don't care like I can go you know, well, you're, you're, I'm always interested in that, in that I never quite know where to describe as home. So this is obviously my home because I have lived here for more than 30 years. Yeah. And yet I still refer to New Zealand as home. Who do you support in the rugby? I don't like rugby. Well, if you had to, I don't like I hate rugby, but like if I just brought okay, it up. Okay, New Zealand. The, yeah. I would support Ireland always. Yeah, that's the soccer. cricket test, isn't it? Uh, was, were you in school? Were you smart? Where, where did your love of... Were you a good writer? Were you, were you, did you, um, when, when did the journalism or... Oh, yeah, no, I remember buy? that very specifically. I was 14 and my aunt and uncle took me to a radio station just to... They knew somebody and I went and I thought, oh, this is really good. And then at school, we went for a school trip to the local newspaper. And I thought, this is really fascinating. I kept it in the back of my mind... And I did always like writing and I was always quite inquisitive. And I was good at English at school. But actually that's sort of almost irrelevant. It's really about the ability to ask questions or to seek answers, I think, is more So you're a curious child. Yeah, I've always yeah. been quite curious. And where did you come in the pecking order of your brothers and sisters? Well, I was the eldest. And I say was because it turned out that I had a brother Oh. that I didn't know about, who oh. was a year older than me. When did you find your older brother? Uh, when I was 29. Wow. So there's now him, me, and my sister. And yeah. then I have a half-sister who uh, is 13 years younger than me. What was it like to find an older brother at that age? Well, at first I didn't really believe it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he was also a full brother also. So it was oh. both our parents had, had had him before they were married and given him up for adoption. Ah. But it turned out that we went to the neighbouring schools. He went to the boys' grammar and I went to the girls' grammar. And So he um, seeked out his biological parents and yeah. made presto, yeah? Yeah. It also turned out that we went to university at the same time and we did 
couple of the same lectures. So we were actually in the same room. You don't have to answer this, but was it was that very awkward when, when he came back on the scene with you? Because he was obviously living in the same area as you guys, right? As your family or not? Or? Yeah, yeah, no, he was. Um, there was nothing in life that could prepare you for it. I so bet. you had to work your way through it. As it turns out, it's really phenomenally common. Yes, no, I've, I've actually had a guest on the show who had the same thing. Yeah. You know, so it is, it yeah. is common. Uh, but at the time, you just think, oh, mm. it's just me. And then you start talking about it and you realise it's not you at all, just you at all. Yeah. Um, and oh, there's the three yeah. sisters going, mm, do we like him? Do we like him as our brother? <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Of course you have. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the fact is... Does he look like you or me? Or... <laughs> yeah. So the minute we, we met in a hotel room in, in Cairo, it was very funny. How come Cairo? Well, because he and mum were in New Zealand mm. and my sister and I were here. So we thought, where have we all always wanted to go? And we thought, well, oh, we've all always wanted to go to Egypt. Yeah. To solve so, the riddle of the Sphinx. Yes. <laughs> so, we, um, so we met in the hotel room in Cairo. And the minute we looked at him, it was clear, it. He, he was our brother. And we've all got a very similar sense of humour. The nerves of that meeting. I can only imagine what yeah. it was like for both, for him and and yeah. And but it's, it's been the most fantastic relationship. And I mean, I was, I was just on the phone to him yesterday, and you know, having a long that's great chat. And yeah. so, did you you so you saw the radio station and the newspaper? So did, did so you you kind of had this little idea when you were still because yeah. one of the reasons. I'm doing this as I find a lot of kids, including myself when I was uh, younger, they just don't know what they want to do and they get corralled by parents with the best of intention down sometimes avenues that really are not suited for them. They're more suited for maybe how the parents view their image and what their children are doing. You had this in you little fire burning from... Yeah, I don't know if it was a fire. It was a flame. Pilot light. Yeah, it was there. It was there. But I did what was expected of me, and I went to university, and um, then I was going to do law, uh, because it had always been assumed, and I can never remember how this was assumed, that I was going to be a lawyer like yeah. my dad. And, That's why. Um, we were, yeah. <laughs> but I can't even ever remember that conversation being had, yeah. but it was, one thing That's was, that it was always expected of me to achieve. Yeah. I remember at school, actually careers evening or something and, and saying oh, I'm going to be a lawyer and they said yeah you know th- this was very much a school that said you know why be a nurse when you can be a doctor they wanted you mm. to achieve so I sort of began going down that route and then I thought hang on I want to be a journalist why am I doing this and I dropped out of university my oh. father wouldn't speak to me for um, quite a long time and I went into a journalism course which was six months long mm. taught you the basics Shorthand, typing, paragraph, cover everything media law, yeah, 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 how yeah. to how to yeah. structure a piece, how to go and find mm. a story, and then I came top of that course, joint top, still friends with the guy who who I was joint top with, and I then got a cadetship on um, the Auckland Star, which I did for eighteen months. What age were you going in there? Like eighteen, nineteen? I was nineteen, yeah, yeah. nineteen, twenty, nineteen, I think. It, it was a tough learning environment, but in fact, I'm very grateful for it because it, it meant that I had the confidence to then come here and apply for jobs. And then at one stage, I went to Australia and worked there. And the combination of all that got me to where I am now. You know, you talk about this being sort of advice for younger people. Well, actually, you can't do it like that anymore. No. You know, you have to go and do a postgraduate degree. I mean, mm. I personally don't see the need for it, but you pretty well do. For me, it was just learning on the job. I mean, one of the best things, you know, I remember going to this absolutely tiny little town in the middle of the North Island, mm. and you had to find six stories. 
in some way that ostensibly nothing much happened. Yeah, and not he, the weather, yeah. And not the weather. <laughs> and he came back with six stories. Yeah. And, and that was the best lesson in journalism ever. Just yeah. keep asking questions yeah. until somebody will say something interesting. Well, we use it in advertising. We say, I have a thing which is, if you ask a client why over and over again, you'll get what you need to do. Yeah, well, I've got a friend who's an architect who Mm. says the same thing. You know, when he's trying to design somebody a house and they sort of have this vague idea of, you know, well, quite like a living room that looks out over, you know, this beautiful mountain or something. But what do you want for your bedroom? What do you want for your, you know, what do you want to look like when you come in through the front door? You know, like, yeah. 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 Why? Why is a good question? Why is it? Well, that's, that's the, if you, if you had to sum up your job in one word, it would be that, right? Yeah. I'm not going to go into it only because I was watching it last night. I'm going to put a link to it, if you don't mind, in the podcast of your, the opening part of your lecture two years ago. You talked an awful lot about your early days with the AIDS crisis. Is, is, is AIDS okay now? Have we, have we, is AIDS under control or is there a chance it can come um, no, AIDS isn't under control. It's under control in in the Western you, world. Yeah, to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're doing really well in South Africa now, and that's that's been one of the big things that I've seen change in my career. Um, spent a lot of time in South Africa, where at one stage I know yeah. I've still got this very clear image of filming a coffin maker lines and lines and lines of coffins because all he, he just couldn't keep up with the demand for right. the coffins you know yeah, yeah. Um, filming I think I said in that lecture filming in an orphanage mm. a- AIDS orphans who were themselves going to die well their orphanage they're, gone, they're, yeah. they're, which no, is great to see I think for uh, you right yeah, really yeah, good yeah. really good but still the numbers are going up in Russia and parts of Eastern Europe parts of Asia it's going mm. up largely to do with drug abuse I mean Russia's a very sad case and very worrying mm. and it's now linked with a lot of other diseases like tb and the hepatitis c rates and so on so no the, the absolutely i mean i sound like a politician here but there is no, no room yeah. for complacency on no. this one and, and that's what i was going to go with this i mean i jest about you know every few years this like where, uh, my joke is where's all the irritable bowel people now you know <laughs> which was a big thing and and then there was the celiacs, and then the, the, you don't hear celiac anymore. You hear gluten-free, which is the same thing, I think. And then something else will come up. There's this cycle of, of which I suspect is marketing-driven, not health-driven. I suspect someone's got something that cures something, and then they make a thing of the thing that they cure. Well, there's Do always you see that, that um, you know, that the um, American Psychiatric Association every 10 years or so puts out its its manual of, of psychiatric disorders, and then mm. there are always a whole lot of new ones in there yeah. that you've never thought of. And yeah. um, there's always the suspicion that they're created by the drug companies because the drug companies want you to have some sort of form of obsessive compulsive bipolar disorder depressive you know for this pill for this pill um and i think there is an element of truth in that some of it is market driven um but where do you stand fashionable some of it yeah maybe the gluten-free stuff about people with very poor body image or Mm -hmm. you know and they're just looking for an excuse not to eat you know all that sort of stuff that's but the big the the the, and i'll probably get this slightly screwed but the big pharma idea is we spend so billions and billions and billions to get to that pill and without us doing that then there is no pill there is no cure there is no nothing and the incentive that we have is that we get our five or whatever many years exclusivity on that pill and we can charge what we like in some cases obscene amounts of money to try and keep people alive which has happened recently where do you stand on that dynamic which is a free market ish dynamic 
Do you I think? was having that discussion today with somebody. This very discussion. You know, we have to be grateful that we live now and we live in an age where we've been kept alive because there were antibiotics, because there are fantastic cancer drugs and so on. But without a doubt, if you want to look at capitalism in its all its glory, the pharmaceutical companies, I think, represent that very mm-hmm. well because we have this issue with the health service, for instance, where we don't have an endless pot of money and you get these drugs that are coming along that are insanely expensive. Yeah. You can't actually ever quite work out. They use that excuse of R&D, but sometimes they haven't even done that yeah. R&D themselves. They've just bought it off. The, I'll give you an example. It's the hepatitis C drug. This really drove me insane. It was the most expensive drug ever launched on the market. That's saying something. And it cured hepatitis C. I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah, I didn't even know But it was so expensive that the NHS said, we can't afford this. You know, there are however many people out there, tens of thousands of people in this country alone with hepatitis C. On the other hand, if you didn't cure them, there was a huge risk that they would go on to die from cirrhosis of the liver or they'd need a liver transplant, which would be way more expensive and than the, pills, the drug. Yeah. You know, which the and big pharma know that when they're pitching the price. Exactly. But so they had to have a massive, and it was a heart-rending time mm. because I was interviewing people who were really desperate. You know, and in fact, one it didn't arrive, he didn't get the funding in time and he did have to have a transplant. Yeah. And yet... I did not blame the NHS for saying, actually, we cannot afford this. The party in that discussion that's on the right side of ethics and morality is the NHS, not the big pharma. What's being ignored in the big pharma approach is the humanity of it, the mortality of it, the lives that will be lost. They don't care about that. No, but that's how they market themselves. So years and years ago, 17 years ago, maybe, I was in South Africa, where um, a group of pharmaceutical companies came together to stop the South African government undercutting the HIV drugs. Uh, no, in fact, it was about bringing in generic drugs. I think so I've got I've forgotten what it was now. But anyway, it was the it was the the all the pharmaceutical companies saying we're not going to drop our prices. So cartel. Well, yeah. people literally yeah, dying, dying yeah. on the street. Yeah. Viagra apparently was originally they were working on something to do with yeah dilation, the, the dilation of the heart, mm-hmm. and then they went, oh look, look what happens <laughs> down there, and then that became the thing. And ED became the big hot topic, so to speak. Well, that's interesting because then that goes back to the original point that you were making was because then they tried to market it for women. Yeah. Um, it doesn't do anything for women that I know of. Right? Well, it, I've it tried. Was, it, <laughs> it was a creative, <laughs> you know, it was a creative yeah, disorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, you know? it was a creative disorder. That's exactly right. And that is marketing. I mean, that's the same as body shaming and, you know, you know, the whole ad industry is about creating a problem in order for you to try and solve it by buying whatever product we have. Um, moving to something else which I know you're very passionate about and so am I. I just came back to Ireland after 21 years away and I am astonished at the amount of mental illness that I'm seeing around me. Not people who are in a hospital for it, but just people who are massively depressed uh, nihilistic, why should I be here, bipolar, and some getting treatment. Is that something I've missed? Has it always been that bad, or is it getting worse? Um, it probably is getting worse. Of course, it's better diagnosed, yeah. less stigma, which is a really good thing. 
I think it's a combination of all that, but there's certainly more of it around. Um, the idea that, though, that there would be that amount of people bottling it in 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, but I'm tr- putting my, a brave face on. Yeah, I look at my own family where there were a long line of depressives, mm. then going down the generations, they didn't seek help. Yeah. You know, I suffered They took from, to their bed. Yeah, yeah, well, I suffered from depression very badly in my mm. 30s, but I sought help, mm. you know, and I was the first generation to actually say, you know what, I think I need some antidepressants, yeah. I need a bit of counselling, yeah. I need I had a bit one of help. issue where I had a car crash and I, I kind of pushed that to one side and I was about 10 months later and I hadn't forgotten about the car crash and I was... I thought the world was coming in. I was going, this is not me. But I am like that. I go, okay. I talked to a couple of friends. They were all coming up with weird answers, but I just went straight to see somebody. Nothing happened for the first three visits. End of the third visit, I mentioned, I was like, the car, what was the car crash? I hadn't even brought it up. All of the fourth session was about the car crash. PTSD diagnosed. What happens now? Well, you can continue to see a psychiatrist for the rest of your life over this, or I've given you a hook on which you can hang while you're feeling that way. Um, okay I'll try that and that worked touch wood again but it was absolutely frightening there's a part of me that thinks because religion is dying which I think it is across most of the intelligent world and I mean I'm, I'm saying that you know I'm coming from probably one of the most still most catholic countries in, in the world but we do have oh my god you just voted for abortion well I'm going to come to abortion it's written down next um, no but we, we, we're in the words of Dougal Maguire and Father Ted ah come on Ted it's a bit far-fetched now isn't it but with with the death of God in, in our hearts comes a huge questioning of purpose and a huge questioning of why bother and I see that around me and I feel it from people because revelation and an afterlife and I'll see my dead dad again is kind of okay right that gives me okay something to aim for and it also somehow dissolves the tragedy of death I mean is that is that is that an argument for someone like you who's in a very rational interpretation well of what I, I agree to an extent mm. of it and I do think I do think that religion did did give some people a degree of succor they could go to the priest and they could talk about their woes or they could mm. confess or confess, yeah. you know whatever but I think the fact is that life is way more stressful than it used to be particularly if you live in a big city that people who used to bottle it up do feel freer to talk about it now mm. and they don't lock you up so or electrocute you or whatever. Yeah, for yeah. for yeah. a lot of people, you know, who were really bad, they were just shoved in an institution, the door was locked, and that mm-hmm. was them. So you, you, as a member of the general public, didn't see these people. But now, you know, there were so much better treatments. Mm. There's another problem, I mean, certainly in the health service, which mental health has not been funded properly for years, ever, actually, ever. Um, and they keep talking about parity of esteem, and that they, which means that they're going to fund them equally, proportionately equally. Um, but it's not happening. Mm. And it gets... I had a uh, discussion, shall we say, with the health secretary the other day right. when I was interviewing him, when he said, we're, you know, we're going to make mental health our priority. And I said, well, how are you going to guarantee that money's not going to be slipped off to pay for cancer treatments or mm. something? Because mental health has always been treated sort of second class. There's a, I tell you what, what, my view on it is there's a sort of a scepticism 
amongst medical professionals and religious about mental health. So I'm segueing beautifully into abortion here because we had. I'm really intrigued if, if to you see can how say, you're going to do that. If you can say beautifully into abortion, well, you, you you pointed out we did have a referendum in Ireland. We have a 13 week abortion in any circumstances law about to come in with a three day waiting period, and then afterwards at the discretion of I think two or possibly three independent practitioners. And one of the reasons that comes up regularly when it talks about abortion, to the point where the British system was said, everyone just says, I'm depressed and I'm going to kill myself. Okay, you can have an abortion. That's the Irish Catholic defense of that, the love both people. But the patriarchy idea of controlling a woman's body and telling her when and why she can't have an abortion, rather than the woman deciding, as if women like having abortions, or, oh, it's okay, I'll get an abortion. Like, it's a horrible thing for any woman to have to go through. But the idea that ne- men- the mental health of the woman is different from, say, if she has a fatal fetal abnormality or if she's got cancer. It's like she's only just saying that to get an abortion. There's that element running under it all the time. Yeah, well, I'm seriously depressed about the state of the world when it comes to abortion. Mm. You know, I, I believe and have always believed that it is absolutely and utterly a woman's right to decide that it is her body and nobody should tell her what to do with yeah. that body. And I went on marches when I was, you know, 11 or 12 with yeah. my mother to fight for this right. When did it come in in New Zealand? Well, quite late, actually, yeah. later than here. I think. And then, you know, you see all the stuff that's happening in America where they're rolling back. Yeah. Um, the rights of women, you have yeah. protesters outside abortion clinics here as well. And I despair because mm. it, it feels like we're going backwards. You know, we, we as women have fought very, very hard to move further forward to get that feeling of equality and that control over our bodies, which is what the Me Too movement is mm. all about mm. as well. And it just feels like the fight has just got harder and harder and harder when it shouldn't be. Well, well, our we had a landslide victory, you know, which... Actually, a lot of us working on the repeal side were a bit surprised at. My girlfriend, who's a very strong activist, made a lovely observation. She said there's going to be women who are 80 years old who are going to go into that box and put a big, you know, even well, if their husbands like don't happened. know. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it wasn't the young people because the young people could have probably carried a 50, 49, but a 70, it was nearly 70, 30. And I, there's still a lot of religious people. I have religious friends who I spoke to who... They'd never say it was for religious reasons, but you know it was for religious I mean, one of the lines I wrote was, doesn't your God know whether you're going to be born or not? If the God is omnipotent and omnipresent, God knows who's getting born. So you're, you're waiting for them. You're waiting. You, we, we'll be back to you. Yeah, you go. You're, you know. and, and yet there's this, there's this insidious thing with particularly church, because Ireland is still very church. Although less and we so. have we, although much less so. It's crumbling. As we, I mean, the Pope, as, as I said, more people went to watch Man United, a British soccer team, when the Pope was here than went to see the Pope. Whereas when I went to see him in 1979, one in three people in the country went. And we're, we surprise ourselves in Ireland sometimes. We, we were, you know, with the, with the marriage equality and with, with this. But we still have this skeleton-filled closet with Magdalene laundries and paedophilia priests and all this kind of stuff that we're slowly trying to shake off. But the biggest thing was we were sending all of our women over 12 a day over here. Do you think Wade versus Roe will be overturned? No, but, you know, it's enough under threat that we need to keep an eye on it. Do you see and feel that the... It's a question I asked somebody else in an interview recently. It was a family lawyer. Do you feel that men are getting more woke in how they treat women? Or do you feel it's getting worse? Or do you feel it's a bit like depression well that men are asking themselves more about their behavior that women are are more are safer in today's society than they were 
No. For a start, we're looking at it through a prism of our middle class intelligence values. Sure. So maybe the men I work with, maybe the men you know, your friends, yeah, they probably are asking themselves this and they probably are being more careful with the way they behave and that's a very good thing. You know, in journalism, the levels of sexism and Did you attitude, have much in your career? Not tons, but that's just because I'm a bolshy sort of woman. Yeah. And but, Were you aware of it though? Yeah, the, I mean, my first job. One man, you used to have to go and see him to get the photographer to go out with you. And you used to stand right back uh, in the doorway rather than go into his office because you, if you went anywhere near him, he put his hands up your skirt. And it was really, and you know, I was just a 19-year-old. I, I didn't have the words to mm. say, actually, get your hands out of there right yeah, now. Yeah. Different levels, different degrees of sexism throughout. You know, we've seen in... The media industry, for instance, a lot of soul searching about the way women are paid and things yeah. like that. Are there men out there soul searching? I would say probably the majority aren't. No, they haven't. And we can see in the support of the type of men who are supporting Trump, for mm. instance, and Kavanaugh, that whole incident. Yeah, that, that they last feel month. put upon mm. and they feel that worried for our sons. Yeah. That sort of yeah. thing. And I think that there probably will be some sort of backlash, or there is, I don't know. I, I, it's certainly not moving a, as fast right as I direction. think. And, you know, what? You, you have a look at the stuff over um, Harvey um, Weinstein, and yeah. it, you think, well, almost that feeling like when they dropped one of the charges the other day, it's like, yeah, so these women, you know, are they making it all up? Mm. You know, it's a massive degree of women still not being believed when mm. they say... yeah. Well, rape prosecutions are something like 0.9% of, I think it's less than 1% get prosecuted. So not to be too negative about it, and, you know, the gloriousness of this discussion is, you know, I have a nine-year-old daughter, Mm. and it means that I can talk to her much more easily in some ways now about, you know, you do not have to put up with this shit, Mm. Mm. actually. I want you to be a confident, happy wonderful woman who will say no you cannot treat me like that and I didn't even though I was brought up by a feminist mother and I was very confident in many respects too many things went by because I didn't quite have the words to say actually don't treat me like that but there are many 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 girls and women out there who don't have that empowerment right now Mm. some of this me too discussion and it's a bit like the feminist movements in the 70s don't take in poorer yeah. less educated young girls who, who don't have that I'm just trying to say for, like it's good that we're talking because from a male point of view it's utterly unacceptable now and back then when I was growing up it was for me unacceptable for guys like I've burned friendships over it but there were the jock guys who would go the, the Kavanaugh's like all that stuff yeah, that she said they're still there they're still yeah. there they're doing it to try and show how attractive or cool or whatever they are powerful but there's a there is a i think there's a i think there's men who are just going uh-uh, this is you know that and they're not afraid of these dickheads and and i mean is it just a middle class thing i don't know I, well you know saying you're a feminist is still quite a difficult thing. i mean i we, don't have any trouble with it but there are we there have are, a presidential candidate who is a, our five presidential candidates were asked where are you a feminist one of them said no followed by but i don't discriminate between men and women 
Yeah, but there are women who won't call themselves feminists. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm proud. In fact, mm. I was talking to a conservative MP the other day. We were having an argument about the phrase committed suicide. Now, you shouldn't say committed suicide because it criminalises taking your own life. It's actually from a bygone era when to attempt suicide was illegal. Well, the Catholic Church won't bury you if you're... So we're, we're very strong in, in the use of language around mental health. And uh, I had a little bit of an input into the Samaritan guidelines and so on mm. about how to report on mental health to try and change the language and I was and he was like oh that's just you know PC that's you know whatever something rather gone too far and I said well having grown up as a feminist and in the feminist movement one of the strongest points was changing language to talk even you know not saying the word ladies in some ways it's to yeah. say I don't want to be called a lady yeah um, because I think that it's used to diminish women, to make them appear sort of weaker and fairer yeah, and whatever. Yeah. And at the point I was trying to make to this politician was language is your first line of attack. It's used to attack people who you believe are not your equal, but it's also our line of attack back. Yeah. The same. Yeah. Where do you stand on the whole the pronoun situation, Where, which in my view is getting out of control? I mean, I was in the royal court restaurant. They had a um, a toilet which said handicapped and gender-neutral toilet. And to me, that solves the problem. For like, It's one toilet, anyone can go in, and we don't need to necessarily have to... Because like, then my point is, people are identifying as elf. They're getting ear operations because they feel they're elves. Now, I'm deliberately using this one, and apologies if I'm offending any elves listening, but you don't call them elf, then you're committing a crime. You know, do we have to have a toilet for elves with maybe little seats? I'm, I'm using comedy here, please, and don't get at, everyone get at me. But do you know what I mean? Where does it stop? I'm Sean. I want you to call me Sean, and everyone who's Sean is Sean. And we end up with, like, billion... Everyone has their own toilet. I mean, I'm joking. I'm making a point of satire. Well, I think it's actually two different points, because um, actually I glory in the change to the toilet scenario, because for too long we women have had to queue... Exactly. ...and take it into the loo, because they never built yeah. enough toilets, not taking into account that women take longer. Queues at concerts that <laughs> yeah, go around the block. Yeah, drove me crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, long ago I took to going into the men's, yeah. because, I, you know... The older you get, the less able you are yeah. to hang on. Yeah. And, or, you know, using a disabled and, toilet. And I have <laughs> been in toilets where a girl is busting to go. And most times men go, oh, shit, okay. And they try and accommodate you. There's no threat, I hope. On the use know. of pronouns, that's a very different thing. And I've been having a discussion with um, with some friends and their daughters and so on. The young people, my nieces and nephews, see no, no, have no trouble with this at all. And I think I have trouble with it because I'm a, an English pedant. Okay, and, well, maybe I'm so, the same boat um, as you. I think it's my age. And actually, if somebody wants to be called they... Zer. Or whatever, then... I'm cool with that. Fine. I'm cool with the uh, that I person ne- there in the room. Fine. but when, I never liked being called Miss or Mrs. Or I, I never wanted to be called Ms. Ms. Oh. Well, I didn't even like that. I didn't want yeah. that there. Um, because I didn't see that it was anybody's... Um, business whether you were married business or not. whether I was married yeah, or not which is true and I, I've always found that difficult and I can, mm. so I can understand where the next thing is coming from and I actually glory in the way my nieces and nephews generation is much more fluid about mm. their identity and whatever but it's like all these discussions and all, most of the discussion we've had for the past 20 minutes or so is the pendulum will swing mm. a long long way and then it will come back to somewhere 
better than it was. Yeah, it will improve, but sometimes it goes a long, long way further than, and you get really annoyed with it, and then it will come back. But I like the discussion. Yeah. You know, I'm not entirely sure where I stand on, you know, all of it. Neither am I. And I, I would be I, slightly I, cautious on some of it because I fight you can the corner, get trolled. <laughs> I fight the corner of the comic. I'm very worried that the court jester is not allowed to operate in the future because, for fear of offending somebody. And that, to me, is a scary thing. And we need a court jester. We need some of the greatest comics in the world, people even to this day like Doug Stanhope, who play to small venues, but they speak truth and they eviscerate and they skewer authority. And they, it's so important. And unfortunately, to do that properly, you occasionally are going to step on people's toes. Skewering authority is very different from skewering somebody with a disability well, or a... Well, if authority... No, but like when I say skewering authority, I'm, I'm saying the, the way things are done, the, the, the norms. You don't want to offend people, but sometimes you will step on people's toes and you will cause offence at a comedy show. You go to a comedy show, you're going to hear things maybe that are not 100% politically correct. That's not to say... I promote hate speech or anything like that or anything racist, but I, I, I t- I'm terrified of the, of the um, comedy part of our society, which I think is critical. You know? Well, there has been a lot of discussion recently about um, universities uh, uninviting Especially guests America, and yeah. so on. And I'm, um, well, happening here too. And, I, and I'm a journalist, mm. so I believe in open debate. I believe, mm. in, and as long as it's not hate speech, that you do need to have keep the dialogue going, keep hearing different points of view, but it can't be offensive. That's where I draw the line. The New Yorker's situation recently where they, um, Steve Bannon got uninvited. Now, if I was a journalist, if we were in journalist school or if I was in college, I want to get at Steve Bannon in my lecture theatre, you know, and oh, a lot of, but it was, it was, oh no, he's going to offend us all by coming here and saying things that I don't want to hear. Well, boy, then we're going to have you know, the, the, it, many of the great revolutions start with students or the young people, and, and I, I kind of we're, we're not going to solve it on the no. podcast today. Um, what would you say to your younger self, looking back, if you could sp- whisper in her ear? I would say have more confidence, and people will be surprised to hear me say yeah, that. I find you very confident. You know, I'm 56 now. Right. I was very shy. And um, I actually took myself aside at one stage and Did said, you? how are you going to be a journalist if you, if you can't put yourself into these situations? And to, be, to believe more in, in, just to believe in yourself more. So your opinion is as important as somebody else's opinion. Mm. And don't fear being shot down in flames, because I think that's what I was at times. I, was, I didn't want people to tell me off was a lot of that to do with gender or I think so and partly the way I was brought up or whatever yeah. um, and I just wish that I I just wish that I had been more confident and you know I never thought that I was good looking or intelligent well I sort of knew I was intelligent but I didn't know how or, you mm. know much and, and I just wish that I had I could have seen myself, looked back on myself and thought, you know, you're actually a really nice person. Mm. You know, you're pretty good looking and you're intelligent. Go for it. Go for it. That's what I would say. Brilliant. Victoria McDonald, thank you for being on a pint with Shawnee B. Keep the fight going for us all. Uh, The new people like you. Thank you.